All right, what's up guys? Friday edition live of the White House Brief. Trump is pulling troops out of Syria and Democrats and Republicans are furious about it. We're gonna break it all down for you now on the White House Brief, Friday edition. All right, so I've said this on the program before. When it comes to foreign policy, I am absolutely not an expert. I want to bring our troops home. I want to prevent people from dying. I want to end the endless wars because I think we've been in the Middle East meddling for a long time and really no one knows what we've been doing. And we have the experts who are telling us, oh, we need to do more of this. You are the same people who have failed us in the past. So I admit that this is not my area of expertise. However, I do have someone here whose level of expertise is much greater than mine on this topic, and that is Jordan Schachtel. Welcome to the program, Jordan. Thanks for having me, John. Good so, to be with you. So we have uh, Trump pulling out of Syria, and a lot of people are upset about it, and there's so many different factions and so many different um, groups that we're told this is a mistake, we're told this is an error, we're told this is disastrous to our safety, and we are abandoning the Kurds. What's actually happening? So... We're engaged in a very limited withdrawal from one specific area of Syria with maybe dozens of troops, and they're relocating to another area of Syria. So, again, you can actually have an issue with that. If you really want to pull out entirely, that isn't being done. It's a very limited operation. Turkey said they're going to go into Syria, they're going to wreak havoc, create chaos, and we had to get out of the way. The president came to the conclusion that they were for real and that American troops' lives were at risk, and the time was now to get out of there. So you don't think the president's making a mistake? No, 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 not at all. And in fact, um, the problem is that pa our past foreign policies created this situation. So particularly the Obama administration has a lot of faults here for creating that situation, which was basically a ticking time bomb in northern Syria. So the president, um, you have Turkish troops, you have Islamist rebels, you have communist Kurds all about to fight each other. He sees the American military um, only a couple dozen people, very small base. They could be overrun. Something bad could happen. And he decides, you know what? Not worth the risk. I'm getting out of there. Right. And so you have all these experts who are saying this is such a mistake. Yeah. Um, and the mainstream media line is that, oh, we are abandoning the Kurds. It's abandonment. And, uh, you know, they fought by our side and they helped defeat ISIS. And now we're just leaving them to die. Is that the case? Well, the president's trying to commit to a ceasefire with the government of Turkey to secure the human, the individual rights, human rights, the safety of the Kurds. And he's gotten President Erdogan of Turkey to agree to allow them to evacuate the area. So now the, the opponents of the president's policies are now saying, OK, we not only have to save the Kurds, which the president is trying to accomplish, we also have to give them a state in a sovereign country and have the American military do it for for the that, Kurds. Right. Um, and I understand that they helped us defeat ISIS, but it was also, as a lot of people have already mentioned in the media and foreign policy world, that the Kurds had a lot of interests in setting up the state for themselves, of course. So defeating ISIS was priority one for them, too. So right. it was a dual interest mission. And so the president got in a lot of trouble because he implied that these Kurds weren't necessarily the best people. And he said they're communists. Um, and there's reports that, that he told Nancy Pelosi they're communists. You might like that. Um, 
but there's more nuance, right? Like the, the, the Kurds aren't all angels. Yeah, so the president's talking about a faction of the Kurds who militarily controlled that area of northern Syria, um, the sworn enemies of Turkey. This is a group that has killed hundreds of Turkish citizens over the past decade. And not just the Islamist Turks hate the PKK, this Kurdish guerrilla Marxist group, the entire population of Turkey despises this group. They're ma- there's suicide bombers. There are some really bad guys there. You know, people in Turkey have family members that were killed by these people. They stormed into the country and have done awful things. So there's consensus behind this right. in Turkey. So you've got the PKK, um, who is a faction of the Kurds. Yes. They're a faction of the Kurds. And they're a terrorist organization? Yes, they're a U.S.-designated terrorist organization. And people in the media are saying we need to stand with these people? So the problem was, you have to go back to 2015. We were fighting ISIS, and the Obama administration decided that it would be a really bad look if we formed an alliance with the PKK. So what they did, and you can look it up, they set up a Kurdish militia and called it the SDF, the Syrian Democratic Forces, and this was all run by PKK people. But in order to kind of like get around U.S. anti-terrorism laws, essentially, they set up this fake group, which they said, oh, includes Arabs, includes Christians, maybe like one or two guys. But the command and control structure was all PKK people. Right. So, so they set up the SDF, the Syrian Democratic Force. Mm-hmm. And that's basically a front group that would allow us to partner with the terrorist organization, the PKK. Yeah. Um, in order to uh, to do what? To eventually Defeat ISIS? wipe out ISIS. But right. the problem is that the Obama administration's strategy was so focused on ISIS that he forgot about everyone else in the region. And now you have Iran that has total control over Syria and Lebanon now. So it's created a lot more problems for us. And then in defeating ISIS, we put this PKK Marxist group on Turkey's border. And now Turkey's freaking out. And you know, that's a country, 80 million people. There's two million Kurds in Syria. So when you look at those two things and you combine them and you look at U.S. interests and you really don't want to upset 80 million Turks, you know, we already have bad relations with them and relations are declining. And the worst thing we could have done is to arm a Marxist uh, militia on Turkey's border. And we did. Yes. And we did. And so why do you think that people are so butthurt over this this withdrawal? Well, I think it goes to show that these strategies have, have failed. This was a ticking time bomb. You can't rely on the U.S. military to stay in Syria forever. So eventually we were going to have to pull out. You know, that's not our country. Syria is not uh, 52nd state, 53rd state. Uh, and it, it's like it's ridiculous that people think that the U.S. military is just going to go and stay in whether it's Afghanistan, Syria um, and many other countries and that they the U.S. military is in charge of keeping the peace forever. We already have we're already overstretched. Um, you know, we already have to stay at the DMZ, North Korea, South Korea permanently. We have a huge base in Germany. We are so overstretched overseas um, and putting our troops in these conditions in these Islamic third world countries. When they come back, they are very rattled from PTSD. And, you know, the PTSD epidemic in our country um, the bad policies certainly contributed to that. Right. So that's another huge issue. And, 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 you know, when you talk about the number of people who have died in the, uh, you know, in the war on terror, yeah. I think it's 8,000, um, something like that. But then you talk about all of the people who have committed suicide. Um, and it's up, I think it might even be up in the hundreds of thousands. Um, it's 20 a day. Yeah, it's yeah. 20 a day. People. So, you know, those numbers aren't taken into account when you 
tally up how many people who have died um, in these ridiculous wars. And it has to be strategic, obviously, um, but it has to also be the objective, and I think Trump ran on it, was, was bringing people home. And the Democrats, who are complaining about our military budget, um, seem to be on board with continuing and perpetuating these endless wars. Yeah, that's the thing. If Congress wants us to go ahead and fight our NATO ally, they can pass a declaration of war against Turkey. I think it would be absurd, but right. they have a constitutional prerogative to act, and they decide not to do it. So they're just releasing social media statements uh, on Twitter or on Facebook, just complaining about what the president's doing. Oh, you're abandoning the Kurds. Well, the past administration's policies have set up a, a situation where the U.S. military was in grave danger if they were going to stay there forever. And, you know, we're still stuck in Afghanistan because of these bad policies. We created this hellish yeah, government. So what the hell are we doing in Afghanistan? Well, people need to have political courage. And the problem is right now is that the Taliban, um, which is an awful Islamic authoritarian, awful group, they have overrun most of the cities and strongholds in Afghanistan. And basically what's left of the Afghan government is centered around Kabul, the capital, and the U.S. military is also there to prevent the Afghan government from getting wiped out essentially. But the problem again is that the Taliban continues to move, continues to be aggressive. Um, they are going to take the country back and it's only a matter of time. So again, you know, you have the U.S. military in a situation where we're acting as a protectorate for a government that we installed, which has failed. Right. And we still have some troops in Iraq, no? Yeah. And so, what are they doing there? Well, that's a complicated situation, again, because we installed the government in Baghdad, and then you have really good Kurds in northern Iraq. Iraq, right. And then you have a Sunni population that feels disenfranchised by the sectarian Shias that we set up in Baghdad. Um, and, you know, that contributed to the rise of ISIS, certainly, was that the government was so vicious against the Sunni people. So, again, you know, the U.S. troops in Baghdad are kind of uh, the policy, not the troops are perpetuating that bad situation, but the bad policies are creating the untenable situations that are leading to violence. And are they so if we pull out what, what are the what's the likelihood that ISIS is going to return and and attack american cities and yeah kill so americans. here's the thing about isis like the defense department doesn't release much footage about what we did to the territorial caliphate of isis but we basically we basically just leveled the entire place raqqa which was isis's syrian capital is basically sand at this mm -hmm. point we destroyed all the buildings there's nothing useful there's no infrastructure there's no economy there so people saying oh isis is going to return I don't think ISIS is going to return because we, we've killed almost everyone there. We've demoralized um, anyone that wants to join. You know, the biggest threat was like the Americans, you know, coming to Syria, joining ISIS or acting out on behalf of ISIS. You've seen a huge reduction in that because we have ideologically obliterated them. You know, they had this caliphate. They thought, oh, you know, we're going to win. We're going to keep this territory. And the Trump administration showed them that that wasn't going to be the case, and right. we totally destroyed the territorial caliphate. So I don't think it's coming back anytime soon. So the people on TV who are saying, oh, ISIS is going to return are full of it. No. So that's, uh, that's enlightening. Jordan Shocktail, I appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me. So Jordan Shocktail, I brought him on because I admit it, and I've acknowledged it before, that I know just about as much about this stuff as every other egghead on TV who's 
proclaiming to be experts on this subject. And it's just not the case. And so there are certain people who actually know what they're talking about. And I believe that Jordan Schachtel is one of those people. Um, he'd debate whether or not he'd call himself an expert, but I think he's much more of an expert than any of their people who are actually proclaiming to be so. All right, guys, I'm here with the one and only Mike Rowe. He has a new book out. It is called The Way I Heard It, and he is here in Washington, D.C. And when someone's here in Washington, D.C., everyone wants to know the big question, which is what are your politics? First of all, it's great to be the one and only. Yes. It's great to be the one and only anything. But I dare say, from a political perspective, I'm of a mind that if you step back far enough, we are all our own respective one and onlys, thereby fundamentally at odds with the binary proposition of the aforementioned query. So, you know. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. No, let me give you a straight answer. Because people want to know, oh, Democrat, Republican, Independent, and you but don't have a... Uh, of course I do. Yes. Of, of course I have opinions, goals, agendas, and deeply held beliefs. I also have a foundation of which I'm the CEO of, of which I'm the CEO. Um, and what I learned early on, like 11 years ago when I started MicroWorks, was that I get more permission than I've ever had to weigh in on things that are germane to the foundation, like education, like the prevailing definition of a good job, like infrastructure, things like that. Uh, conversely, and perhaps counterintuitively, I also learned that I have less permission to weigh in on the things that everybody else talks about. If, if I want to run a foundation that's truly egalitarian and nonpartisan. So it's a tricky question and I usually try and dodge it because I don't want to shoot myself in both feet. But politically, uh, certainly economically, uh, I'm right of center, socially, pretty much down the middle, maybe even a little left. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I work in a world where, where education and money and, and labor dominate every conversation I have. So in those regards, I'm pretty agnostic. Sure. And it used to be that we lived in a world where you could avoid talking about stuff like that and keep those beliefs to yourself. However, does it feel like now we live in a world where that's it's unavoidable because everyone is talking about it and you have the celebrity era where, you know, uh, actors and musicians and all these people are weighing in onto the political in yeah. the political sphere and it is unavoidable at a certain point. Well, we're living, I think, for the first time in an in a, in a nation of correctors. Maybe not true. Maybe we've always been a nation of correctors, but never before have we had the facility to correct so quickly and efficaciously. We're armed. We each have a device in our pockets right now that will allow us to do a quick search and find other people in other places uh, who agree with us. And so we'll swoop in with our correction and then we'll cite like we're suddenly all researchers, right. right? And so everybody's comparing notes about who thinks who and who said what when. Context goes out the window. And uh, the real the real trap that I believe we're in isn't that we're talking about important things. That's always good. It's that everything seems to be consistently framed as binary, this or that. So the gray has gone out of the conversation. Good, bad, black, white, blue collar, white collar, left, right. You must choose. You must choose. And if you don't, what's he hiding? What is he hiding? Right. Why won't he choose? So in a world where everybody's a self-appointed corrector, 
and where the you know the world is doing this, right? Don't you feel like the world is drumming their fingers yep. on a yep. table, waiting, 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 and looking for any sign of inauthenticity, any sign of incongruity? Hey, the dirty jobs guy turns out he can't actually hang drywall. <laughs> He's a fake. He's a fake. Right? And so, I, I'm so fascinated because you know you're the dirty jobs guy, but you also sing opera. And you're a fan of Puccini. You bet I am. And uh, and it's just, it's just it's fascinating to me to have someone. And you realize you're all pe- people are all individuals um, who can't be multifaceted. Here's a, here, here's an example of a guy who said something that, in a knee jerky way, I I agreed with. And a lot of people pointed out during the debates in '16 when Marco Rubio said, "We don't need uh, we we don't need more philosophers. We need more welders." And like thousands of people came to my Facebook page and say, there, that guy gets it, you know, just like you. And I'm like, wait, no, no, no. I never said we need fewer philosophers. I said we need more philosophers who can quote Nietzsche and Descartes. And we need more welders, you know, sorry, more welders who can quote philosophers and more philosophers who can run a bead. Right. Right. So it's it's again, it's not either or it's two sides of the same coin. Right. And people so want to make it, you know, that you have the elites. And you have the people and you have the philosophers and then you have the blue collar people and there's no room to have a, a, a middle ground. And you can be both. When people talk about the skills gap, the first thing I think of is the gap between the parties you just described. If the white collars over here and the blue collars over here, then mathematically there must be something in the middle unless there's nothing. In which case you have a gap, you have a vacuum. Right. So when it, with regard to work, with regard to just about everything now, we've we've created gaps because we don't we don't look at coins anymore as items of currency with two sides. We just assume, right. you know, it's one or the other. So you've got your book out. It's described as short stories designed specifically for the curious mind plagued with a short attention span. That's correct. Why do so many people have this minuscule attention span where they can only pay attention to, and, and I, I'm plagued with it. I, I can only pay attention to things for like a tiny amount of time. I can see you drifting off right now. You're thinking <laughs> right, of something right, else. Right. You're, you know, I and, get it. And You've recognized that. Why is that? Well, because uh, because I've been accused of being the exact opposite. You know, when, when I started my Facebook page, my first post was about three thousand words long, and and people at Facebook, as well as everybody in my company, it was like, dude, no one is going to read this. Right. I'm like, look, I don't care. I'm writing it to amuse myself, and and I I want to be understood, and I can't I can't do it in a tweet. Some people can. I I don't want to. Right. Right, So I I started seeing these things and I write about this in the book, TLDR, TLDR. I didn't know what it meant, you know, and (laughs) so I asked a millennial while I was out walking my dog one day and it's like, oh, too long, didn't read. I'm like, so why would somebody take the time to tell me that I wrote something that was too long to read? (laughs) Right. Because, I mean, are they really so terribly busy that they can't write? That was too long, so I didn't read it. You know, everything's an acronym. Right. And so. I just, I see it happening and I understand people are busy and I don't want to judge anybody, but when it comes to telling stories, you know, you need a beginning and a middle and an end. Anna Karenina had all that and the book was this thick. Right. My stories have all that too. It takes six minutes to listen to them. Plus they're mysteries, right? So I just stole an idea from Paul Harvey, <laughs> one of the greatest broadcasters of all time who did, you know, a series called The Rest of the Story. My, my biographical part of the book are stories about famous people I've never met that leave you with a surprise. In between is an accidental memoir. 
But they're all short bites uh, for terribly busy people in our TLDR culture. <laughs> Environment. Where you know you can't. Uh, it's too, if it's not 280 characters, you're not going to. Uh, you're not going to reach people. But do you find that it is harder? Um, you know, as someone who's a little more uh, long-winded, if mm-hmm. you will, um, to reach people in this environment where people will just say TLDR. Yeah, of course, it's a challenge. Um, but the bigger challenge is you. You have to decide. Do you? Do you really care? You know, I mean, if you're if your goal is to simply reach as many people as possible, then you got to play ball. Uh, if your goal is to amuse yourself first and foremost, and then hopefully find some people who are and amused with others, you, yes, okay, uh, then you have a little bit more permission to wander far afield. In the end, in my view, people don't really care if the thing is long or short. They care if it's boring. Mm-hmm. They care if it's not engaging. So if, you know, I, mean, I, I spent four hours the other night on YouTube looking at things I wasn't even looking for, but really fascinated by the fact that I went down the rabbit hole. Right. You know, suddenly I'm watching Bernstein give a lecture on the Pythagorean circle of fifths at Harvard in 1977, and I can't turn away from it. Right. It was long, but it was really engaging. And I think people are... I think they're starving for it, actually. Yeah, I, I think so, too. And I think that it's just, you, it has to be the right type of, of content. But, you know, I know so many people, I know so many disen, uh, disenfranchi- disenfranchised young people who spend hours and hours on YouTube consuming that kind of content. Mm-hmm. And, they, uh, and then we are also told that we're in this environment where you have to be uh, 280 characters or less. But I think that... Like you said, people are starving for it, and it's just a matter of how to reach those people. And I think you've been able to reach those people, and the kinds of people that you try to reach and talk to um, are a lot of those types of people. And, uh, you know, working class, blue collar people who have been told they can't make it. You know, I have so many viewers and people who contact me and say, you know, I'm in college and I don't know what I'm doing and I don't know how I'm going to pay for it. And I feel screwed. And I feel like that's the type of person who needs to be told uh, you don't necessarily need to get a you know, $200,000 education. Look, we, we've been, we've spent 40 years convincing a generation that the best path for the most people is the most expensive path. It's a very cookie cutter way of doing things. That's what politics does, right? If you want to get elected, you have to run on a platform and you have to say things that apply to the largest chunk of people. But we're a big country. And if you tell 60 million kids that they're screwed if they don't get a four-year degree, and if you really believe it, and if you convince them, as we have, parents, guidance counselors, peers, pop culture, a lot of things have come together and conspired to convince this generation that a four-year degree is their best hope. Well, then... You can explain virtually every uh, surrounding problem, not as a problem, but as a symptom of that. Why is college so expensive? Because we freed up an unlimited amount of money and we Mm -hmm. convinced you Mm -hmm. that you had to borrow it or you were going to die. And the result, $1.5 trillion in student loans. Right. That's not a problem. That's a a symptom. We have 7.3 million jobs available right now that don't require a four-year degree, right? But we ignore those, and we focus on the number of people who are out of work. 
that still dominates the headlines when in reality, there's so much opportunity out there right now that requires training, mm -hmm. requires mm -hmm. certification and competence. So we education, we're dead without it. But the idea that there's only one viable alternative for everyone, that's the load of bullcrap that we fed right. our kids. And, you know, I feel bad because we're telling them, you know, you have to pay your student loans off and, you know, you have to uh, practice uh, fiscal responsibility. But you are the people who told these people, you have to get a four-year degree. You have to spend all this money. You have to take out these loans. And then you're telling them, well, I'm sorry you're screwed, but you have to pay off these loans. Um, I agree with the fact that you have to, you know, meet your financial um, responsibilities, obviously. But the idea that you wag your finger in these people's face and tell them you have to take out these loans in order to do this thing that's actually not going to really help you in life yeah. is irresponsible in my Look, opinion. Look, we sold them a bill of goods, but we did the same thing in the real estate market. Mm -hmm. You know, every bubble that's ever formed has formed because somebody somewhere figured they either found a shortcut or they figured there was a, uh, you know, a better way to do a thing. But, but it's almost... It's almost never the case, but you're right. You know, it, and it's not just the money. It's the every every time I really see a takedown of the university system, and when I see millennials really maligned, mm -hmm. you know, it, I I think that we're the clouds from which the snowflakes sure. fell. Sure. Right. And so, we, <laughs> I mean, how angry do you want to get? Right. You know, right. We, no. we're, we're, we did this. Right. So you know, we can fix it together. But you're right. We ought to take some responsibility so for it. you made a career off of, or a TV show off of going, doing all these crazy, dirty jobs. Um, and these are important jobs that people should know how to do. Um, is there any job that you said, okay, that's, that's out of the realm. I'm not, that's not important and that's stupid. Nope. And I would never do that again. Well, now, <clears throat> there's plenty of things I wouldn't do again. <laughs> right, right, right. There's plenty of things I wouldn't do again. But I, I never refused to, to do something that was a legitimate legal job. Uh, I, I passed on a few because there was zero opportunity for, uh, for humor, like crime, crime scene cleanup. Right, right, right. It's just very, very tough. You know, I, I, I wanted to do a lighthearted show with no second takes that celebrated work uh, right. the way I encountered it in the field. And so, yeah, it was a super And that, of course, is show. engaging and, and entertaining as well. And it manages expectations. You know, for me, as a big part of the book, when I, I realized when I was 43 that for the 15 years prior, I did well. I, I, but I was impersonating a host. Mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. I had lots of different jobs, lots of different networks. But when I finally realized, thanks to Dirty Jobs and a rat in a sewer, that, that I wasn't a host after all. I was a... I was a guest, you know, that allowed me to function very differently on camera than I had previously. And every good thing that's happened since then has come from a basic understanding that I'm not what I thought I was. So how do you mean that you, you were telling me that the people who sit up here in ties and, you know, pretend to be experts on all these subjects aren't actually uh, worth their salt? No, I, <laughs> I'm saying that. I'm saying that I'm not, I'm an expert on me mm -hmm. and that's probably it. Um, but for a long time, big blue chip nonfiction brands, they made their living the same way network news does. Their people talked like this. And when they looked in the camera with authority, you could tell they meant what they were <laughs> saying because they all sound like this, right? Yep, I mean, yep. that's what they do. 
Right? And, and so the voice of authority and the, the presence of an expert became a really important uh, calling card for most nonfiction networks. I'm, I'm, I, I didn't want to do that anymore. You know, I, I thought it was better to celebrate curiosity as a fan of that brand. And as such, my request was, look, give me some jet fuel and a small crew and permission to go around and look under the rock. And we'll meet real people who are actually experts at sewer inspecting or septic tank technicians or fill in the blank. Let them be the expert. Let me be an avatar or a guest, you know, and uh, it worked. It absolutely did. And uh, and I think it really hit a hit a nerve and people absolutely recognize that. Thank you, everyone. Mike Rowe. Appreciate you being here. A reminder to everyone, I'd really appreciate it if you'd please rate, review, and subscribe to the White House Brief Podcast. It will make sure the truth rises above all the other stuff out there. So please rate, review, and subscribe. Thanks for listening.